Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, we talk to Mark Roosevelt, president of St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, about what a genuine liberal arts education looks like and how it contributes to a healthy civil society, and about how philanthropy can be deployed to make college more or less affordable again. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. My name is Jeremy Beer. I am your host coming to you today from Phoenix, Arizona. It is August 19th, 2021. And I am very pleased and honored to be speaking with Mark Roosevelt, president of St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, about what I think will be a whole host of topics, but very much including his college's philanthropy-centered tuition model, uh, what that means and how it's being deployed. Uh, about his college's very unique curriculum. If you're not familiar with St. John's, um, there's a lot uh, to talk about there. And about the relationships that exist or don't exist between certain kinds of educational models and principles and certain outcomes with respect to civil society. Uh, Mr. Roosevelt has a long and impressive history in the world of politics and education. He was, for example, the Democratic nominee for governor of Massachusetts in 1994. Um, after that, or sometime after that anyway, he pivoted into education. In 2011, he was tapped to uh, head up the uh, recreation, really, of Antioch College in Ohio. And now he is the president of St. John's College, uh, a school that I understand, uh, Mark, you have no interest in recreating. Uh, am I correct about that? Um, no, it does not need recreation. It's a very unique institution. Can you just sort of tell us about St. John's, especially for listeners who may be uh, unfamiliar with it or, or confuse it with the St. John's in New York where Chris Mullen once starred? Uh, well, we are very different from that. We essentially have no sports. Um, however unusual you might think, and Jeremy, I know you know a bit about St. John's, however unusual you think we are, we are more unusual. So, um, for instance, we don't have professors. We have tutors, and that's not just a semantic oddity. Um, we call our faculty tutors because they don't profess. All of our classes are seminars, approximately 18 students in a classroom with two tutors. They are Socratic in nature. The tutor begins with a question. Our curriculum is entirely required, so everybody must take the same materials from freshman year through senior year. It's great books, and that's what people think of it as who know of us, but it's also rather deep science and math as well, which surprises. So you need to be able to do a differential equation on the blackboard, do some calculus. And it, it's, a, it's a tough, we could be, we, we like to say we are, but we don't know that we are the most rigorous curriculum in the country. Students learn a little ancient Greek in freshman year. Um, they read Hegel, they read Kant. They basically, the, the point is to try to understand how we got to be who we are. Right. Now, it is Western-focused because we are a country in the Western tradition. Um, it does have a reputation for being a lot of dead white men in the curriculum, which is mostly but not exclusively true. But again, the, the goal is to help people understand how we became who we are, why we think as we do, um, who were the great 
thinkers who caused upendings of earlier ways of thinking. And the goal is to prepare people to be flexible, creative thinkers and problem solvers. What is it about then uh, the the curriculum, uh, Mark, in your opinion? I mean, every college or university president I might have on this podcast or any other podcast would say they, they are, their school inculcates critical thinking, uh, you know, the ability to um, uh, um, uh, become creative and flexible and all that sort of thing in one's thinking. Um, but what is it specifically then about the St. John's curriculum that, that works? Because it's actually true. I've known many Johnnies. <laughs> they are, um, as, as graduates of the school tend to be called, uh, they, they tend to be very reflective. I'd say that's the thing that always stands out to me uh, when I'm – in fact, I can often tell when I'm in the conversation with a Johnny or someone who's gone to some kind of great book school. What's the magic sauce there? Is it a deep engagement with the tradition? Um, is it that uh, everybody is taking the same curriculum? What do you think it is? Well, first of all, let me just say, Jeremy, because I don't, I don't like to be high horsey. doesn't always work. Um, students need to embrace what we do. Um, our goal is to create people able to dialogue across difference and be respectful across difference. I think it, it is it is certainly the curriculum that we believe is effective, but it's also the pedagogy. So, for example, a question is just different at St. John's. In a normal college, you know, a question will be some professor lecturing on something who will ask a question to see if the students know what that professor thinks she or he knows. We don't do that. A question at St. John's is an invitation to go on a journey in which there may not even be an answer at the end of that journey. Right. So there's a, there's a very different approach to learning, more skeptical, um, perhaps that the answers that we have in our world are conclusive. And that's one of the things the curriculum does is it goes through prior ways of thinking and then goes through thinkers like Galileo or Copernicus who showed that those ways were wrong. And we know now that 50, 100 years from now, some people will show that some of the ways we think about things are wrong. So it, I, I like to think it produces a healthy humility. Right. I think liberal arts should produce humility. And that is not something you would think is in, is in large supply in sort of the larger cultural conversation, if we could call it a conversation, which we probably can't today, is a sort of healthy humility or a vulnerability. I guess, uh, intellectual vulnerability. Yeah, no, I like vulnerability. And I, I really mourn this, Jeremy. I think, I think many of our problems are created by hubris, um, by thinking we know more than we do. And that's a funny thing about a school that tries to teach a lot. In the end, one of the things I hope students learn is what we know is dwarfed by what we don't know. Well, that would truly be the Socratic conclusion. Would yeah. yeah. And, um, and an important conclusion when dealing with things like climate change just, just so, you know, the, the, the medical idea of first do no harm, mm-hmm. if we applied that to human conduct more broadly, um, we would be in better shape than we are. Have you thought about this? Does it come up? What's the relationship, at least in your mind, between the sort of education St. John's provides, the sort of outcomes we're talking about, which maybe don't always work, but often work in terms of um, uh, inculcating a kind of humility uh, and a more... Uh, being open to vulnerability and one's uh, thinking about what one knows. Um, what's the relationship of that and the, between that and the, and the health of civil society? And I'm, the implied premise here for me is that it's not very healthy or that its health has been declining and we have statistics 
to show this kind of thing. And there are all sorts of factors, material factors, uh, uh, very much among them. But is there, are there factors that stem from the kind of education provided uh, elsewhere uh, that, that we seem unable to um, or uh, to uh, talk to one another across difference, to um, we're less interested in associating with one another uh, outside of certain kind of bubbles? Do you see, well, how would you characterize the relationship if there's one at all? Well, first of all, I accept your premise that civil dialogue is in decline and that we are more divided um, maybe than ever before, and certainly we're more divided than we would like to be. Mm-hmm. I, I again go back to the pedagogy versus, you know, the lecture format is the primary form of learning in college, right? Right. Someone telling you something, you potentially writing it down or somehow absorbing it, and then being able to um, spit it out on an exam. That's just not who we are. So in a small class, in a seminar, um, discussing philosophical or literary works, um, debate ensues, and we make sure that it is civil. We make sure that people are respectful of other people's opinions, even if they object to them, which can happen when discussing the Iliad or the Odyssey or war or slavery or human misconduct, which of course is rife throughout human history. Right. So we really do believe that engaging in that dialogue and learning how to do it, learning how to be a successful seminar participant, which at its most beautiful is kind of like an improvisational jazz ensemble, right. in which people say something, then somebody riffs off of that. It, it does teach skills that a lecture format will not even begin to teach. And it, it must be, that's a very good point. So essentially, we have, must learn, we must be educated into uh, a sort of an ability to speak with others and not, not take offense at opinions, uh, a quick offense at opinions that are different than ours and um, deal with difference uh, it, that doesn't come naturally to human beings. That's something we need to be, it has to be inculcated into us. Would, am I repeating what you're saying or summarizing it correctly? Well, you've added an additional point, which I think I agree with. But, you know, I, I do think that, um, and again, you know, we all have our politics. I have my politics. It's meant a lot to me in my life. But we try to keep the campus from having um, a dominant political view. We mm-hmm. try very hard to have it be an open environment in which people can feel at home and welcomed who have very different political views or come from very different backgrounds or look different or have different sexual orientations or whatever. We, right. we try to embrace that difference non-judgmentally. So it's very yeah. much against the grain today, though, Mark. Do you oh, explain? it's very much against the grain. And, you know, initially our students struggle with it. If you look at the Facebook site that our freshmen share um, before coming here to get to know each other, um, they get sharp elbowed with each other. Mm. And, um, you know, sharp elbows have a place in this world, and there is some conduct and some speech that deserves that response. Um, but civilly expressed differences uh, don't. So it is, it is a really difficult thing. We don't always succeed. I really want to make that clear. Right. But at least we're trying. At least it is central to our pedagogical objectives, which I don't believe is true of many other institutions. I, I don't believe it is either. <laughs> I, I agree. That certainly makes you very different. Have you, has there been a lot of uh, pressure on you in light of the last 
sort of the upheavals of the last couple of years to to change the curriculum in um, significant ways. Uh, you know, there's sort of an elite consensus, it would seem, that the um, the Western tradition is not necessarily worth spending four years with, uh, um, grappling with in its various dimensions. And certainly, there's plenty of diversity within that tradition, but that, that seems to sort of be the superficial talking point. Um, what kind of pressure have you felt? Well, there, there, there is some, and I don't want to delegitimize all of it. I think some requests that we consider, for example, when the curriculum was founded, um, many of the people we studied at the end were still alive. Einstein, I think Heidegger was still alive. So there is an argument to update it, and updating it to the present time would diversify it. It's not undiversified now, um, but it is dominated um, by by a particular kind of thinking and, and a particular kind of thinker. But I, I guess the only thing I would question in what you asked, Jeremy, is I don't think many people contend that it isn't worth studying it. The question is, what else is worth studying with it? For example, in Santa Fe, we have a master's program in the Eastern classics, mm-hmm. um, which right. would certainly expand someone's vision. We don't claim that when you graduate from St. John's, you're done with your learning. What we like to believe is that they, you have built a platform, a platform upon which your other learning, which your life will be hopefully full of, will build. So it's not the end all and be all. Um, and it, it shouldn't be seen as such. It should be seen as a very valuable tool in, 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 in learning how to be a thinking and thoughtful person. The other aspect that makes you um, so unique as a school is, as you've mentioned, is there's just one curriculum. There isn't. There are no electives. Um, it, there's no. Um, uh, you do not uh, ask students, um, and presumably think that it was a good idea to ask students to create their own journey, so to speak. That uh, that journey needs to be sort of outlined for them, at least to guardrails need to be given in terms of a curriculum, and that that's the best way forward. What What's the thinking behind that? Well, um, not to flatter you, Jeremy, that's your best question yet. <laughs> and because it, better. Good. It, it, takes, it takes giving up certain freedoms to go to St. John's. And those freedoms, we believe, are less important than the freedom you will gain from, from graduating from here and doing the work. But those freedoms are real to many people who do not want what we have, and that is to choose what you study and to design your own curriculum. Um, I mean, again, this sounds patronizing, and many people view it as patronizing, but I don't think the average 18-year-old is in a position to do that, right. and to do that in a way that will be very successful. It will, I think, um, you know, maybe they will never be out of their own comfort zone. Maybe they will never have to, I mean, for a lot of kids start at St. John's, and they're math phobic. And one of the beauties of what happens here is, you know, you can go. I went to Harvard. I didn't have to take any math, really, any science, really. Um, I was math and science phobic, not phobic, but not, not particularly interested. Here you can gain enormous self-confidence by succeeding at doing something you didn't think you could do. And we have so many students who will tell me, wow, the way you teach math here, and we teach math very different, um, made me love it. And also empowered me to get over this feeling that I was inadequate in that area of, of thinking and study and learning. So we take you out of your comfort zone. And that is something that students have to be willing to do. And they have to be willing to accept that they've given up certain freedoms, even though in the end, we think they gain a great new freedom 
which right. is the freedom to look critically at things with a base of knowledge that helps them do so in a in an intelligent way. So that's another against the grain idea you've just articulated. Very much so, and against what you know. Again, we're small school, right? We have a thousand students on two campuses, and and most most young people would prefer to have choice. But your point, I think, is very well taken, and we don't hear very often, which is that um, your the the effective scope of your freedom can actually be expanded by by having some restriction on choice placed upon you in some way for a while, at least in the realm of education, right? Absolutely. And, and more than that, Jeremy, I can almost promise you, not everybody, but hardly anybody graduates from St. John's thinking and believing uh, the same things they entered thinking and they emerge changed. And again, I have real questions about how often that happens in other kind of educational settings, especially right. where you're allowed to design your own curriculum and choose your own professors. You may just get reiterated to you things you already believe, ways of looking at the world you already embrace, instead of being asked to confront ways of looking at the world that are different from your own. Absolutely. We will be right back with Mark Roosevelt, president of St. John's College in Santa Fe. All right, we are uh, back for a practicality with my colleague, Carmen Natchke, a digital strategist here at American Philanthropic. How are you doing, Carmen? I'm doing fantastic. You are in Sultry, Florida, and we are recording this on August 11th, uh, 2021. But we're going to talk about year-end. You've got a little bit of advice for us today on the three essential components of a year-end digital campaign. Do I have that right? That is correct. I do. I have um, essential components for year-end digital campaign that I'd like to share with listeners. And uh, it is August, so you may think, oh, geez, it's, it's a little bit early to be thinking about that. But A, you're probably listening to this in October or something like that. Uh, and it's not too early, even in August, to be thinking about the year end. It's so important. And there's a lot to um, get straightened away if you're doing fundraising because a lot, two-thirds, three-quarters, something like that, of charitable revenue uh, for nonprofits tends to come at the end of the year. So this is really important. Uh, Carmen, well, tell us, what, what do you got? What's the first essential component? The first essential component is planning and touching on what you said about, you know, we're August. And actually, um, I consider July should be the, the point of kickoff for this. But August means that, you know, you got to catch up quick and um, you want to get your planning done. And what you want to do with your planning, this is similar to even non-digital channels. You want to review what was done the prior year. And if you're new to this, if this is your first end of year campaign, you want to look at other um, organizations have had these similar type of campaigns to get some inspiration. So with the planning, you want to do, look at the data, you want to set your goals, you want to start defining campaign strategies, which are really, really important, especially with digital, because there's so many different channels to work with and consider. And within that, you also want to look at having a very balanced distribution strategy and content strategy across both paid, which means advertising across digital channels. And when I say mm-hmm. that, it's like think of uh, Facebook ads or, or Google search ads or okay. display ads or even at, even advertising within an email newsletter from uh, an aligned organization with uh, that is similar to yours in some way. So that's a, a really good way of, of niche targeting. Okay, that's good. So, yeah, and um, 
as I mentioned before, ideally, you want to start planning in July because the kickoff period, you want to start thinking October. And I know it feels like it's far away, but these things move quickly and you want to have everything in place so it progresses smoothly. So you want to have the kickoff in December. I mean, I'm sorry, in October, and you want to wrap everything up in December. And key with these kind of campaigns is that even if the campaign wraps up in December, it's going to be pushed out to January because we, at that point, we want to do um, thank you and gratitude toward the donors who contributed to the campaign. So that's pretty much the first thing. Planning is the first thing. Yes. And the second is it deals with the audience. So the second component that I believe is essential is you want to define and prioritize the donor journey and align that with communications. And what I mean by that is there are several stages in the, and I'm taking a donor from acquisition through cultivation and getting a donation and then um, keeping them within that journey and, and repeat, ma- making them basically become repeat donors. So let's take a look at it from the campaign perspective. And I was talking about doing a kickoff in October. So understanding your audience, and that means revisiting the personas. So you want to know um, who's representative. What have you created a persona that's representative of the different audience segments you have and what their journeys look like? And that means across multi-channel, like are they on Facebook? Are they on Instagram, email? What's the preferred place? And you want to look at it from a multi-touch point point of view as well. So for example, in October, the stage that we're going to be targeting is building awareness. So even though our donors already know us or our constituents already know us, it's really important to kind of reintroduce who we are as an organization and get them reacquainted. And then that's the first month, October. In November, you want to inform what has the organization done? What kind of impact stories are there that you can share with the donors? And all this is leading up, we're priming them for the ads that's going to come in, in um, December. So in December, we do make the, the ask. And right. when we make that ask, we're going to also reinforce the, the narratives that we started out in October and November and touch on those impact stories. So letting the constituents know where we've been and where we plan on going. So the things that we've done and the things that are going to come in the future and how their donations or gifts can make that possible. So that's in December. And then either in late December, or early January, it's really important. And it's a very important part of stewardship is the gratitude. Quickly um, contact those who've donated or contributed in some form and thank them. Express your gratitude for them. So that's two. Okay. And what's the last one? The last one is really, really um, look at your data. Digital is perfect platform for making um, real-time changes. You can see exactly how things are progressing. Is a campaign doing good? What parts of that campaign um, are working and what's not? And you can tweak things almost in real time. So really learn to listen to your data. So what you want to be doing is you want to be monitoring, tracking, learning from the insights and optimizing. And another thing you want to do, which is related to data, is testing. You want to have a testing and optimization plan and that's really important, especially if there's going to be paid or advertising, any type of digital advertising, because you can test email subject lines. You can test um, creatives, which are the graphics or videos. Um, there's a number of things that you can test. And that kind of data that you get back will help you optimize it 
So whatever your investment is, you can really, by having this data available to you, you can optimize not only the, the digital components of it, but it's going to be optimizing your investment. So you're going to get a lot more for your money. Right. Excellent. Not too, uh, not too early, certainly by the time you're hearing this, to, uh, to get all this uh, squared away for your end. Thanks, Carmen. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Jeremy. We are uh, back and very pleased to be speaking with Mark Roosevelt, president of St. John's College uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, let's sort of dive towards the philanthropy questions now, um, uh, Mark. Um, what Before we get to your particular model and what you're trying to um, instate or have instated there at St. John's, what do donors tell you they like most about St. John's? What do they resonate with most, perhaps both alumni and non-alumni? I think what we've already been talking about, Jeremy, which is that we promote civil discourse, that we are rigorous, that we demand a great deal of the students. Um, you know, so many studies show that a lot of students emerge from college not having learned very much. That hasn't happened here. <laughs> they, re- they, they respect that. Um, but to take your question further, if you'll permit me, yeah, please. Um, we're so proud that we haven't, as we've talked about, previously already, that we haven't engaged in, in joining the herd in a lot of educational developments that we think are at least questionable, if not negative. Um, but we did take part in one, and we are embarrassed that we did. And that was the gigantic escalation in the sticker price, the tuition price for college. Ours had gotten up to $55,000 a year. And we look back at that, growing at three times the rate of inflation putting the cost of college, at least the published cost of college, and we'll get into that if you want to, right. way beyond the means of average families. So we're not, we're not again, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to get arrogant about it. We've taken our tuition back down to the mid-30s. Um, I believe that is still, obviously, a very high price. So now we're trying to motivate donors, and I think succeeding in good part, around keeping the cost of college at St. John's at least very affordable so that anyone out there who seeks this, you know, very distinctive and transformative education has the right. And we know a lot of people um, who may be the kind of seekers who do well at St. John's would go on the website, see our sticker price and think, oh, that's too bad. I can't possibly afford that. And so we cut off a lot of people from even exploring whether it was possible for them because we have a lot of financial aid to help students who can't afford the $35,000 price. But we, we want to say just very openly and very publicly, uh, we regret having been part of that huge escalation that occurred over three decades and was unwarranted and, and very, very negative in its impact. I have a lot of questions to go from there. So let me, let me go back to one first. Do you think um, because of that decision, as well as the other unique aspects of the college, are you more attractive to non-alumni than many um, colleges and universities might be as, a, um, as something they might want to support? I think so. I think so. Um, and that's because, look, I love small liberal arts colleges, and I don't mean to demean any of them. They add so much richness to American life, but many of them are pretty similar to each other. Um, they may do great things, but they do them very similarly. We are not. So yeah, I think that a lot of people um, 
Um, I myself, I didn't go to St. John's, um, but I really value what St. John's does. And I think there are a lot of people in that place. And yes, we welcome um, their financial support for what we do. And we do get it, I think, and I don't have statistics to back it up, Jeremy, but I do think we get it in larger numbers than most. Well, you, you certainly you have a unique value proposition, if we would use the crass sort of business speak about this. And that, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, because so many are, uh, other colleges are very like one another, just as you said. So another question I would have then is, does this mean, and I don't know the answer to this question, that you are less interested in, in, in building up a huge endowment and more interested in, in using funds right now today to make college more affordable? Or does it not mean that? Does it mean something it, it, does, it does not mean that. We actually hope very much to build an endowment that covers perhaps 30 to 40% of our operating costs, thus enabling us to reduce what we seek from students. And, and let me make one other point, Jeremy. Again, we may be the only, we're in the midst of a capital campaign now. We're raising $300 million, which for right. a college our size is enormous. We've raised almost 250. But I think we're probably the only capital campaign in America that is not talking about building a new building or starting a new program. Yeah. We don't have any fancy facilities. Neither campus has a swimming pool. We don't have fancy dormitories. We don't have fancy food courts. We have an expensive educational model, 18 students in a room with two tutors. And that's what the money raised in this campaign will go to support. So we're different that way. Right. Too. That is very different. Does that, um, does that matter when it comes to applicants? Do you, do, do you have to fight harder to find um, kids? Uh, because you don't have those amenities, or is your unique um, value prop, to go back to that crass language, enough to attract all the applicants you need? Both your statements are correct. Um, we're, we're so unusual that, you know, finding the students for whom we're the right place is arduous. Um, they're everywhere, um, but they're not in large quantities anywhere, if that makes any sense. Um, so they come from an enormously wide variety of backgrounds. A lot of people assume that we educate primarily better off kids. We don't. We're 20 to 25 percent Pell Grant eligible. Um, 98 percent of our students get some kind of financial aid. So they're seekers. They may not have fit in in high school. They may not feel they fit in anywhere. They're looking for some place different, and we are that place. Now, most of those students don't particularly care about the amenities that we don't offer, um, but you know, for, um, for some, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, sports, for example, we have intramural sports, but we don't have intercollegiate sports. Um, some um, students, and quite rightly, know that that's a huge part of what they want from college. So right. we're not the right place. Um, but mostly our students, I mean, look, I'm in Santa Fe right now as I talk to you, Jeremy, and I'm looking out a window at like an incredibly beautiful campus. Yeah. It's incredibly beautiful, but it ain't fancy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, well, Santa Fe uh, it, it certainly has its own attractiveness, uh, and so does Annapolis, for that matter. And you do have unique intramural sports or maybe even unofficial sort of activities that happen on campuses. I mean, uh, I'm just going from my own knowledge and maybe half knowledge now, but, you know, there's a croquet very uh, on the Annapolis campus, yeah. right? A series against the Naval Academy. That oh, is yeah. No, it's um, some people... Um find it odd, but it's really a great pleasure to a lot of Johnnies. There's a, um, a big tradition of croquet in Annapolis, and an annual match against the Naval Academy is a big event. And in Santa Fe, is that there's some sort of wild game of, uh, I can't remember the name of 
some tradition, some something ball or something like that that uh, the students engage in. Maybe well, there have been a lot of unusual activities. They're dead now. Yeah. student-centered. Archery is very big here right now, but it's because there's a group of students that really love it. Um, but we have we have the you know we have volleyball and we have basketball, but right. it's it's intramural. It, do you? Um, we haven't used the word, uh, and, and I'm I'm sure it's probably intentional on your part, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. The word classical to describe the kind of education that St. John's provides. Certainly, there's a familial resemblance to what you do and the sort of classical education that we that is really taking off, and at least in a small way in the United States. I've seen some statistics on this about. Um, Oh, I don't know. Uh, a million or so students now um, in charter schools, private schools, homeschools, um, studying a curriculum not entirely unlike uh, what one gets at St. John's. Very uh, text, great text focused, great yep. focused. Yeah. Um, do you do you um, regard yourselves as um, as related to that uh, movement? As as supportive of it? As not supportive of it? Or not related at all? Do you, does that come in? Even come up. I think we're related, and I think we're supportive. Um, again, um, you know, we we don't do it with a bent. Um, I mean, for instance, there's a college very much like us, Thomas Aquinas in, right? Uh, and they um, modeled um, their curriculum after ours, but they begin and end with an answer, and that answer is God or religion, right? Um, so there are various different ways of approaching the classical tradition. Um, ours, again, is one of those ways. Thomas Aquinas is another of those ways. We honor all such approaches. Um, we're obviously particularly dedicated to ours. Um, so we're part of, of that movement, if you will. I don't think it's a huge movement, but I think it's an important one. I think it's an attractive one. Um, and we do um, often provide education in how we do what we do to schools, high schools, seeking to emulate it. So we'll send tutors out who will help folks um, study our curriculum, but more than just that, study how our curriculum is taught. That's, and that's a great, that, that's a, a good, that leads me to another question. Is that something you would like to see act or even actively promote even more than what you just said in the future of trying to push down into high school and even below the kind of model you employ? Like, would you I, presumably, um, your students would come even more prepared for what they find at St. John's if they encountered some kind of similar pedagogy at, at the high school level or even earlier. Yeah, and honestly, Jeremy, some of our students initially struggle in graduate school because it's a return to the form of education that they left behind. Right. So, yes, we, we I do believe, and again, just speaking for myself, I am a big believer in the pedagogy of seminar and the Socratic method. I I believe that the lecture format has its uses, but I do believe that schools that primarily rely on the lecture would be would gain from adding more small classes, seminar-style discussions. I think that would be an added... I mean, again, I went to Harvard, and you can get an education at Harvard. You can get a very good education at Harvard, but you can also get out of Harvard having learned very little at all. Um, you can be in lecture classes not having done your reading. No one will notice. You can be checked out. No one will notice. Um, and that's just the reality of it. If you were, let me put you, 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 uh, you, I'm sure you have been in these shoes. Let me flip your role. You're a, you're a current or prospective substantial donor to a, to a college, let's say an elite college, perhaps an Ivy League college. Um, what questions should such people be asking uh, before they make gifts? 
Have you thought about that? Would you oh, Jeremy, you're gonna you're gonna get a little glimpse of my less attractive side. <laughs> um, I really do question sometimes why some people give to fabulously wealthy institutions. Right. I really do. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell got in a lot of trouble for going after a large donor to Harvard, but I think he had an underlying honest point. And, you know, the fact of the matter, everything in our country right now is about the rich getting richer and the rest being left behind. And it is true in higher education as well. So I would urge donors to look at diverse colleges, historically black colleges, small liberal arts colleges, work colleges, colleges with distinctive curriculums and way of viewing things. I'm in a small group of colleges. I I won't give its name, but each of the small colleges adds so much to the communities that they they live in. They add so much and they're struggling. And we're going to lose probably hundreds of small colleges in the next decade. And that's really sad. So I guess my major urging would be, all right, if you went to a school, even if it's a wealthy school and you feel it served you well, I understand donating. But I wish that people would also spread their largesse wider uh, towards institutions that are financially less sure, less well-situated. Well, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that argument and um, also to the, the general point that everything in America over the last generation perhaps now has been about the, the rich getting richer and the, a, a, a serious gap growing between um, the wealthiest Americans and the rest. Uh, with that in mind, then, what do you think about proposals to uh, limit the size of endowments at, 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 at well, in any institution, particularly higher ed institutions, to um, subject them to um, heavily progressive taxation? Are, are you sympathetic to sort, such sort of policy or legislative um, proposals? I'm sympathetic to the motivation, but probably not the end result. I would, I would seek other ways of trying to accomplish the same thing. Um, for example, <clears throat> should federal aid go to Harvard? Um, you know, do we have what are what are other more subtle mechanisms to help bridge the gap between institutions that have more money than they could ever spend and institutions that are struggling to get by? I'm also in favor of the federal government exerting some influence over um, what students. I mean, for example, I think schools should have to graduate. Um, Pell Grant students in certain numbers in order to receive Pell Grant money. So it's it's a it's a it's a complex role where you want government to intervene in these things, um, and I think there are probably subtler ways of doing it than taxing endowments. Do we need? Um, I have two more questions for you that I'm going to make sure I get to. One is because um, I, I it's really great to hear your opinions on these matters. Do we need a lot more institutions like St. John's? Or is this always sort of a, um, a, a style of education that is only for a tiny minority? Well, I think you could have a lot more institutions like St. John's um, with varying curriculums, but with a common pedagogy and a common ambition mm. um, to educate people rigorously, um, to request of them that they look at different ways of looking at the world. I think it would be extremely healthy. That's why the, 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 the reduction, expected reduction in small colleges saddens me because many of them are distinctive. I think we should have a wide universe of educational offerings for folks. Some people want vocational education, want to get a welder's license. They want to get something very specific. That's to be honored. That's useful. Right. But we need just a great variety of offerings and we need them to be affordable um, for the folks for whom they want them. And that's certainly one of the 
major issues and and uh, you know the incredibly burdensome debt that most many college students um, graduate with. Uh, so let me building on that and what you just said about welders, for instance, as an example. Um, are you uh, also sympathetic with the idea that many fewer students should be attending four year uh, colleges, getting bachelor's degrees and I mean, it, it, it's an interesting question for me to ask you because you're the president of a liberal arts college, but it's a very different kind of liberal arts college. Well, I, I, I don't think too many people are getting a liberal arts education, but I do believe that to, to embrace the belief that everyone should have and needs a college educational is, is not, not, a very, not a very well-founded belief. I think, I don't think, I mean, I don't know, I think it's what about 30% of Americans have a four-year college degree. That doesn't seem high to me. Um, I would like that not just to reflect economic standing as much as it does. I would like that to reflect more diversity in terms of where these young people um, came from economically. Um, but I, I don't, I don't want to reduce the number of people getting this educa- a college education. On the other hand, I'm not one who thinks that that's the only path uh, to enlightenment or to an effective uh, career or to a fulfilling life. I think one can take various paths towards that. Uh, Mark Roosevelt, thank you for being with us today. Oh, you're most welcome. This has been enjoyable, Jeremy. Thank you. Where can people um, find out more about St. John's College and uh, especially how to support the school? Go to the website, please, and um, contact us. We're happy to have discussions with anybody interested in what we do, either because they would like to support it or they know someone they think would benefit from going here. And we have graduate programs, and those graduate programs are taken by people of all ages who have gotten to a point in their life in which they'd like to step back and, and immerse themselves in these fundamental questions. Well, it's, it's a wonderful education. It's a wonderful model. And I, I'm really uh, grateful for you taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Jeremy. Take care. Hey, thanks for joining us today for this podcast. Before I let you go, I wanted to let you know about a special fundraising survey that American Philanthropic and the Center for Civil Society have just launched. And we would love it if you and your organization would participate. If you are a nonprofit organization that raises money, uh, you qualify for participating in the survey, and we would love to have you be a part of it. How does it help you? Well, it's very, very hard to find good benchmarking data out there in the world to help you know how you're doing in your fundraising program. Are you underperforming here? Are you overperforming there? This survey will give you those answers. So we would love to have you participate. Uh, You can participate just by going to AmericanPhilanthropic.com and clicking on survey in the toolbar. And if you do participate, there's some cool things that happen. First of all, you get a free digital copy of the report, the final report that we produce uh, that includes all the data and that will be very useful to you in your fundraising planning, management, strategy, all that kind of stuff. You also get a free 30-minute consultation with one of our consultants to discuss your results and just kind of talk you through um, what we're seeing in your results and how they compare to your peers. And then there's all sorts of other stuff. You get a a $100 gift card uh, for the first 10 organizations to complete the survey. You can enter into a drawing for a $500 gift card. You get a chance to win a seat at one of Amphil fundraising trainings, which is like a $3,000 value. So that's pretty cool. So, hey. If you are a leader of a nonprofit, a development officer, a board member, we would love 
for you to participate. Just go to AmericanPhilanthropic.com, click on survey. It's a very meaty survey. And that's intentional because we get really great <laughs> data and answers out of it for us to share with organizations like yours. So thank you very much for considering this. And we hope to have you in this survey. Thanks a lot.